Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing a, a, a sermon series that we began two weeks ago uh, called By the Book, uh, Living in the Light of Scripture. And uh, in this short series, uh, we're looking at the Bible in particular and its place in our life uh, personally and collectively as a church. And uh, so two weeks ago, we talked mostly about the origins of the Bible as a message from God, as the Word of God. And this week, we're going to uh, continue in a related line, uh, thinking about the reliability and the truthfulness of the Bible. And uh, so let me begin with a testimony that I read recently of a woman called Rosalind Picard. And uh, she's a professor of computer science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, which is one of the world's top universities, particularly in that kind of an area. Uh, but she was not always a believer. Through her school years, she identified as an atheist. She debated believers. Uh, she believed that religion was for uneducated people. And uh, her daughter Faith came through babysitting for money, which a lot of young people do. And one of the couples that she babysat for, uh, a medical doctor and his wife, they started inviting her to come to attend church with them. And she refused. She always refused. Um, she didn't want to do that. That was too much to ask, really. But eventually they changed tack and invited her to read the Bible, suggested she might want to read the Bible. And that appealed to her a little bit more. She thought of herself as a, a well-read person, but she hadn't read the Bible, so she thought she may as well read this classic text of the Western canon. And uh, she began to, to read. Uh, and so I'm going to quote her own words now. This is what she says about that experience. Uh, the doctor suggested starting with Proverbs, reading one chapter daily for a month. When I first opened the Bible... This was the King James Version. I expected to find phony miracles, made-up creatures, and assorted gobbledygook. To my surprise, Proverbs was full of wisdom. I had to pause while reading and think. I quietly bought a modern translation called The Way and read through the entire Bible. While I never heard actual voices or anything to justify summoning a neurologist, I felt the strange sense of being spoken to it was disturbing yet oddly attractive. I began wondering whether there really might be a God. And she continued to wrestle with that for a number of years. She tried to push through that religious phase uh, in different ways, but in her own words, she says she couldn't escape the pull of the God of the Bible, uh, and eventually she submitted to Jesus as Lord while she was still uh, at university as a student. So her testimony speaks to me of the truthfulness of the Bible. The way it accurately describes reality when someone picks it up and begins to read, they can see something of themselves and of the world reflected in it. Uh, but her testimony also speaks to the low opinion that many people have of the Bible. She starts off uh, with uh, a rather low opinion of what she's going to find in the Bible and the reality is, and this is not news to any of you, there are a lot of people in New Zealand who don't believe the Bible, who uh, don't trust the Bible. 
and I've quoted uh, research by the Wilberforce Foundation here before, <coughs> excuse me, they did an uh, extensive study of New Zealand attitudes to Christianity in 2018, and they uh, asked what stops you from believing in Christianity, and about 52% of New Zealanders, so just a shade over half, said a significant block to them considering Christianity to some degree or other was the Bible. Was the Bible reliable and valid? So there are a lot of people out there who perhaps are hesitant to uh, explore faith because they have doubts about the reliability of the Bible. They don't trust it. <clears throat> and I have to say that I myself have often found things in the Bible that I've struggled with. You know, you read things in the Bible that are difficult to understand, to make sense of. You think, how could this be true? I've had that experience, and uh, so I expect that some of you have as well. Maybe that's not been everyone's experience, but it's been mine. So I'm just going to share a couple of examples with you this morning of doubts that I've had uh, when I've come to the Bible and had a look at it, and things that have bothered me. And there's nothing special about these examples except that they're personal examples. These are things that have bothered me uh, in the past uh, for a number of years, in fact, both of these things. So one is the question about when did Jesus die? Now, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, <clears throat> we're told Jesus ate a, a final Passover meal with his disciples, and then he was killed the next day. However, the Gospel of John, as is often the case, is a little bit different, and it seems to perhaps portray something different key verses John 19 and 4 which speaks about the day of crucifixion of Jesus and it says now it was the day of preparation of the Passover now that sounds to a lot of people like what was happening when Jesus was being crucified is that people were preparing their Passover meals the lamb Passover lambs were being killed and so on so that they could have a Passover meal that evening so Jesus died on Passover day Right? So there seems to be a discrepancy. Did Jesus die on the day after Passover or on Passover? And this has excited considerable scholarly debate. And because this bothered me, I read around and I read some people who said, well, uh, John is right. Jesus died on Passover, so the meal the disciples had couldn't have been a real Passover meal. And then other people have said, no, it says fair and square in these other Gospels, it was the Passover, so John must have got his timeline muddled up or something. Well, that bothers me. And it did bother me for, for a number of years. If the Bible is true, how could any of these guys get the day wrong? So that is one thing that has bothered me in the past. Here's another one. Concerns camels. So in the book of Genesis, it says the forefathers of Israel, such as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they owned camels. They owned flocks of camels. They sent camels on errands. Camels were a part of their life. And there are a lot of archaeologists who have doubted that this could possibly be the case because camels were domesticated a long time after those people were alive. So how could they have had camels? So that's bothered me as well. So I think, well, okay, it does say they had camels. These other people think they went around. So how do I make sense of that? So those are some things that have bothered me, and maybe you've encountered 
other things yourself and you've been troubled by things you've read in the Bible, it might be that it's things that seem like an inconsistency, might be moral issues, the way that the Bible presents moral questions, it might be conflicts that you perceive with science or history and things like that. You might have um, issues as well. Now, I want to believe the Bible, but sometimes I struggle and I wrestle with it and I don't understand it. So I'm guessing some of you feel the same way. And interestingly, it's not a new situation. Uh, the Bible itself actually describes Bible characters who wanted to believe the Word of God, but they needed to wrestle with it. They couldn't figure out how it could be true. So that's in the Bible itself, and I want to look at one of those stories uh, this morning, which we find in Genesis 15, and it concerns Abraham, that we've, a character we've already mentioned. <clears throat> so I'm reading from Genesis 15. I'm going to begin from verse 1. You're welcome to follow along. In fact, I encourage you to do that. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And I'll just clarify, it's a little confusing. This is Abraham, but he used to go by a name at an earlier point in his life. Abram was almost the same. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now this gives us one episode in the life of this famous Bible character, Abraham or Abram. And you can see here that this is clearly an example of Abraham receiving a word from God in his capacity as a prophet. And if you were here two weeks ago, you may recall we talked about Moses and David as examples of people whose day job was not being a prophet. Nevertheless, the Bible talks about them as a prophet, someone who received messages from God. And in Genesis 20, Abraham is another of those characters who's referred to as a prophet. And we clearly see here that he is receiving a word from God in that capacity as the word of God. In both verse 1 and verse 4, uh, <clears throat> we read, the word of the Lord came to him. Right? That's very much the language of the prophets. The language of the Bible writings. He receives uh, the word of God, the word of the Lord. In most cases, when you read about that in the Bible, the way, the mode by which people heard God remains a mystery to us. It doesn't usually explain. 
And we often ask each other the question, how exactly did that voice come? Uh, but in this case, uh, it does tell us how the word came through a vision. Something uh, that Abraham somehow saw in which God appeared to him. But this is the word of God that he's dealing with. Much in the same way as we deal with the word of God when we come to scripture, to the Bible. And in his response to the word, Abraham set a pattern for all those who were to follow him uh, in the family of faith. His response was to believe, as it says in verse 6, and he believed the Lord. Now this is characteristic of Abraham. Uh, he's in the habit of believing and trusting the word he receives from God. His story starts in Genesis 12 when God says to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And without knowing the destination, Abraham uh, listens and obeys and leaves and goes and sets out into the unknown. Uh, in chapter 22, as his, as his life reaches a kind of a climax or a crisis point, uh, there's a very strange episode where God commands Abraham as a test to offer his son Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. Very strange word to receive from the Lord. But he responds to the command of God in obedience. Although if you don't know the story, I'll add, it all ends well and his son doesn't die. But this is, this is how Abraham is. He listens to the word and he obeys it. And in chapter 15, true to form, we read that Abraham believed in the Lord. He believed God. And in this respect, Abraham acts in, as an example for all believers, those of us who are called believers, ones who believe. Uh, the New Testament, in the latter part of the Scriptures, reflects often on the life of Abraham. He's actually mentioned 75 times in the New Testament. So he's only just pipped by Moses as the most prominent Old Testament figure to be discussed in the New Testament. And when Abraham is discussed, his faith is the central personal attribute which is put forward and, and commended about him. Uh, and this statement in Genesis 15 and 6 that says he believed uh, the Lord, that's quoted directly three times in the New Testament. So Abraham is an example to us of how uh, believers are expected to uh, tackle life. And uh, so, for instance, in Galatians 3, uh, we read these, these words. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. However, Abraham is more than just an example of faith in the Word. He's actually an example of faith that doesn't come that easy. You know, in this passage that we've read, we see that Abraham, he believed, he had a strong faith. He was used to sticking with God. But he still had questions and he had doubts. And there were things that he puzzled over. In verses 2 and 3, he has a big question for God. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. 
You've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. You know, already twice before, God has spoken to Abraham or Abram and promised that he would have children. This is the third time God has spoken to him in this way. Uh, and there's been no sign of children so far. Abraham and his wife have grown very old. They were old when the word first came. They're older now. And so Abraham has a really big question. God, you've promised me descendants. Promised me good things. I don't see anything. What's going on? We also carried on the reading to verse 7 where God uh, promises land. And Abraham asks for some assurance in verse 8. He says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? As you read on in the story, you'll see that his doubts persist. In fact, uh, he reaches a real low point, I would say, of faith in chapter 17 and around that time. <clears throat> when God repeats his promise to him again, he says, Abraham, you're going to have a son through your wife, Sarah. And in chapter 17, you read, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Fair enough. He fell on his face. He laughed out loud at the word of God. So when you look into it, you see that Abraham, the great biblical example of faith, was actually someone who expressed a lot of doubts. Isn't that interesting? I think uh, as those who seek to follow after God, that gives us some license uh, to ask questions, to express doubt, to recognize that that's normal, that often doubt is the flip side of a decision to believe and to have faith. And I think giving some expression uh, to our doubts is, is healthy. If you simply suppress and ignore the doubts that eat away at you, you stifle the opportunity to resolve those doubts. Uh, some years ago, uh, a fellow called David Kinnaman led a very large research project in America, uh, interviewing and surveying thousands of young people and trying to find out why young people leave the church when they leave high school and they head off to university and become young adults and strike off into independent life. And uh, he the results of that uh, research which he did, of course it's in a different cultural context slightly, but I think the results were very relevant and interesting for us. He felt they could be synthesized into six main reasons why people leave the church. And one of them uh, is summarized and expressed this way. Young Christians and former Christians too say the church is not a place that allows them to express doubts. They do not feel safe admitting that faith doesn't always make sense and uh, I've met people like that in my work at university people who have felt isolated people who feel confused because uh, they actually don't feel psychologically safe or able to express the questions that they have and I think for the sake of our young people we need to accept the reality of doubt uh, to take questions about the Bible uh, seriously and thoughtfully 
But I also think that when they're taken seriously, it's possible for doubt to yield to faith and for truth to take hold in people's lives. Now, Abraham believes. In other words, he continues to trust, he continues to obey, he continues to hope. He continues to pray. He continues to walk with God despite his doubts. Abraham believed the Lord. He has questions, but he pushes on. He keeps going. And, uh, of course, I would want to encourage all of us to do the same, to believe and to trust, to trust God, to trust Scripture, to trust the Bible. And in the story of Abraham, I think we see at least two reasons uh, good reasons uh, to believe, why we should believe the Word of God. And the first reason is very, very simple, but it's still worth stating. You know, this is God we're talking about, and God is uniquely uh, reliable as, as a figure, a voice of truth, uh, far beyond uh, anybody else we could ever encounter. And so we trust the Word of God, because it comes from God. And God is uniquely reliable. In this passage, you see, uh, it says, Abraham believed the Lord. Where was his faith? His faith was in God and the figure of who God is and what his character is like. And so his faith in the word of the Lord that he received was grounded in his confidence in the faithful and trustworthy character of God himself. That's where his faith primarily resided, in God. And that's why he trusted the Word of God. And there's a general pattern at play here in the relationship between Abraham and God that's always at play whenever people make statements of fact or assert to be telling the truth, right? Whether we believe it depends largely on what we think of their trustworthiness. That's just how it works. Do you believe the pronouncements of Vladimir Putin? Probably not. Now, you've never been to the Kremlin. You don't know anything about what's going on over there. Why don't you trust him? It largely comes down to what you think about him as a person and whether he's liable to tell the truth or to tell lies. Now, here's another example. Right? Meghan Markle. Now, you might be split down the middle on this. Some people hear Megan and they really think she's great and got some good things to say. Other people don't trust what she's talking about. Why? None of us are privy to what happened in the royal family. I've never been to Buckingham Palace. But a lot of it comes down to what we think about her character and whether we trust her. Uh, because uh, to a large degree, whether we trust what someone says uh, comes down to what we think of their character and what kind of person they are. There are, I'm sure, people in your life that you do believe, that you do trust. It might be a spouse, might be parents. Um, and when they speak, you believe, you trust. And again, it comes down to the confidence that you have in them as a person. But the reality is, even the people that we trust the most, and by the way, I should say, I don't actually want to make any political comments or any specific comments about Vladimir or Megan or anybody else. It's just an example of how we operate right? But there are people we trust, but even the people we do trust uh, the most, sometimes they disappoint us, don't they? And they shock us. And 
we discover they didn't tell us the whole truth. Uh, I saw the New Zealand police were in the Herald when I went to get a coffee uh, earlier this week for not telling the complete truth about uh, following cars with CTV cameras and things. And I, I have to admit, I was a little bit shocked because I respect the police. I expect the police to tell the truth. But even the people we trust the most, they sometimes let us down, don't they? Uh, but with God, we're dealing with something utterly, utterly different. Okay, God is uniquely trustworthy. He's not part of this created world. He's not part of the flow of time and change. He sits far beyond that. He's the source and the foundation of everything that we see. He's just totally different. And so uh, in Numbers 23, we read, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He's just not like us. He's a different kind of a thing altogether. And that means God is reliable in a way that far transcends the very best of humankind. And therefore, it stands to reason uh, that his word is absolutely to be believed as true. If God is who we think he is, absolutely we can trust what he says. So when Abram receives his vision, he should believe it because God can be trusted. It's God. And when I read my Bible at the kitchen table, I should believe it uh, because God can be trusted absolutely and completely. So our faith in the Bible uh, doesn't actually primarily reside with this thing in my hand. It's not because there's something particularly spooky about this object that doesn't glow in the dark, it can't magically heal cancer. In one sense, it's just a ream of paper. But I do have faith in the one that spoke the word, and therefore, absolutely, I trust the book uh, that comes from that author. Now, Christians have developed some uh, terminology uh, to discuss these kind of issues that might be useful to, to share and to talk about uh, for no other reason that you're likely to hear these words if you hang around in Christian circles for a while, and it's nice to know what they mean. So the most foundational thing that we can say about Scripture is that it's inspired and you'll often hear that phrase, right? The inspired word of God or inspired scripture. And when uh, uh, Christian scholars use that word, they don't use it in the usual English sense. When we say a performance was inspired, we kind of mean it was particularly energetic or brilliant. Or uh, if an artwork is inspired, we'd say, well, that was a particularly creative piece of work. But when we say that scripture is inspired, it's being used in a technical way to mean something different. Because it's it comes from a, a base word which talks about breath and about breathing. It's related to words like respiration. And uh, so when uh, a Christian says the Bible is inspired, they mean it contains the breath of God that God has breathed into it. Uh, and the idea is taken from a verse that we discussed a little bit two weeks ago, 2 Timothy 3.16. Is there someone here who can remember or quote what that says? Oh, it looks like Sylvie can. Okay, good. You know the whole thing. I don't think I quoted the whole thing, but, but uh, yeah, all Scripture is God-breathed. So that's where the idea is taken from. So that's what people mean when they say Scripture is inspired. It means that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Okay? It's God's Word. 
but there are some things that flow very naturally and straightforwardly from that foundational statement, and we won't discuss all of them this morning, but I will talk about two. If uh, this is uh, the Word of God, or if, if we could say if it's inspired, then when it gives a command, uh, it should be obeyed. And we call that the authority of Scripture, that actually we subject our lives to what it says in Scripture because it's inspired, it comes from God, therefore when it gives a command, we obey it. Now the Bible does give commands, it's not all commands, it also makes some statements of fact, and if it's inspired, uh, then we believe that when it makes a statement of fact, it should be believed. And the word that's commonly used to express that idea is that the Bible is inerrant, which means without error, it contains no lies or mistakes, it's just the truth. So when God speaks, unlike any human, his words come with a guarantee of truth. That's just how God is. And so we believe in the necessary inerrancy of Scripture. Now, my own experience with doubts and problems that I have with the Bible is that in the fullness of time, uh, the truth of Scripture is often confirmed. My own faith in the reliability of God has grown over time as I've seen that process take place in my own life. Let me talk about those examples that I discussed earlier. When did Jesus die? Now, as I say, that bothered me for years. I talked to various Christians I knew about it, tried to resolve it in my own mind. The time came when I read uh, something um, by Don Carson, and it completely resolved all those issues that I'd had. Uh, and it involved recognizing two things. Firstly, uh, that the word Passover is sometimes used to refer to the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread that starts on Passover. So Passover is a day, but it's also a week-long thing. And we see that clearly in Luke uh, 22 and 1, in the Scripture itself, where it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So Passover is used to refer to both a day and a week. And the second thing that uh, I was able to recognize is that the day of preparation is a term that's used for Friday, the day before the Sabbath. And so when John says that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation of Passover, he could simply mean he died on the Friday before the Sabbath that fell in the Passover week. So they had the Passover on Thursday, he died on Friday, he rose again on Sunday. It's very straightforward. What's all the fuss about? So that was resolved really happily for me, but I had doubts about it. I struggled with it for a long time. Um, my questions about camels came to an end uh, when I realized that indeed dromedary camels, one hump camels that we see all around the Middle East now, they were domesticated relatively recently, but Bactrian camels, so two hump camels, they were domesticated much earlier, about five and a half thousand years ago, and they were used in Mesopotamia where Abraham came from, the city of Ur. And so it's very reasonable to suppose that Abraham owned Bactrian camels. Just doesn't tell us how many humps they had in Genesis. So that's another one that really used to bother me, and it doesn't bother me at all now. So look, I've, I've often had doubts, 
but I've also often seen my doubts resolved in a way that vindicate my faith in the Bible as the inerrant word of God. And we trust the Bible because we believe in a faithful and a trustworthy and a reliable God. Now, there's another reason why we trust Scripture that I see in this passage. And that is, uh, we believe the Word of God because we want a relationship with God. And all healthy, harmonious relationships are built on trust. There's just no other way to proceed. I mean, you know this. Imagine if um, when Joe was going grocery shopping, I think, well, I really need to validate that. I get on my bike, tail her down to count down and follow her around, just check that she's actually telling the truth. Well, she says she's going to work in Mata Mata, and I ring the school office and just say, is she there? You know, a relationship's not going to last long on that basis because a good relationship can't be built on suspicion. It has to proceed on the basis of trust. And we've already talked about why this is. If I don't believe my wife's word, that implies I don't trust her character. I don't think she's trustworthy. And if I want to honor her, I have to trust her, even if she says some strange and puzzling things sometimes. Actually, I'm sure it's more the other way around. But that's how relationships work. You have to proceed on a basis of trust. And it's the same with God. If we want a relationship with God, uh, we have to trust Him. We have to keep accepting. We have to keep obeying. We have to keep hoping, even if we don't fully understand what is said. And when we do that, when we express faith in spite of doubts, actually God is greatly honored uh, in our relationship with Him. Um, and we show that we really think highly of God. Now you'll see in this passage... It says, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Because of Abram's faith, uh, God counts him as righteous. In other words, God says, Abraham, you're okay with me. Things are right between us. You're right with me. You're righteous. And on that basis... Abraham is invited into a formal uh, covenant relationship with God, and that's what's described in the rest of chapter 15. Abram expresses his doubt. He wants some assurance, and God says, you know what? Let's do a ceremony. Let's just make it official. This is forever. These are my promises to you. And he enters into a covenant with him. And so on the basis of his faith and trust, the relationship is established, and it moves forward. <clears throat> And ultimately, of course, Abram's faith is vindicated. God is shown to indeed uh, be faithful. And for us also, the foundation for a relationship with God has to be uh, trust. Uh, in Hebrews 11, we read these well-known words, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And if you want to draw near to God, if you want to move alongside God, you want to please him, then you need to express faith in him. That's just how relationships are. Uh, in John 5, Jesus says this, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Who's the one who has unending life with God? It's the one who believes, who hears the word and believes it. You want that for yourself? Then you need to trust the gospel word that comes through Jesus that we find in the Bible uh, and put your faith in God. You know, the Bible's not just an object for us to evaluate and study to grade out of 10 to decide how much we believe and how much we don't because there's a relationship at stake. And belief in Scripture is an expression of the relationship that we have and that we desire uh, with God. And I believe um, that like Abraham, uh, your faith in God will be vindicated. You know, there will be an eternal home. The world will be made new. I, myself, you, if you have faith, will see Jesus. Suffering will be defeated. And doubt will be a thing of the past. And that will be good. Uh, uh, God says to to Abraham at the start of that passage, your reward will be very great. You know, and that is a hope for us as well. Not because we deserve it, but because God is good. And faith will be vindicated. I intended to say a little bit about one of my heroes, Augustine. I think we'll just not worry with that. But there is a pretty picture of him at his conversion. Just by the way, he, he, he was also someone who came to faith as an adult from, uh, I should say, he lived about uh, 3rd and 4th century AD, a long, long time ago, but very smart guy who influenced philosophy and theology ever since. Uh, but he had a low opinion of the Bible um, and actually learned to trust the Bible as, as he grew in faith and as he came to faith as, as an adult, and he was actually converted reading the Bible. He heard someone singing, take up and read, take up and read. He thought maybe that's a message from God. I should read the Bible. And as he picked up, the first thing he read was in Romans 13, told him to leave his old life behind and to put on Jesus. And he was converted. Anyway, I won't say any more. Um, I'll just say, if you, if you want to respond, what does that look like this morning? Well, uh, it's already been mentioned, there's, there's Bibles at the back. I talked last time about the Action Bible, uh, the Field Guide to the Bible. Both of those are available. There are copies of the ESV, which is like a word-for-word, hard-to-read translation, which I tend to use, or the NLT, which is a more dynamic, easy-to-read translation. They're both very good translations. Um, you can go out there and get something to help you engage more with the Bible. If, you're, um, if you do struggle with doubts, talk to one of the leaders here. You can talk to me. I brought along some things I pulled out of the bookshelf. Uh, the Reason for God, Confronting Christianity, the big book of Christian apologetics. I don't have anything specifically only about the Bible, but a lot of these books, Defending Christian Faith, do spend time talking about the Bible and why it's believable. There are resources you can look at if, if this is something that you really feel you need to uh, address for yourself. And um, we've talked about doubts and questions and puzzles and the need to address them. Uh, during the elective times, I'll be taking Q&A, and that's all it is. I haven't prepared anything. It's just your questions. So if you, w if you do have questions or you want to explore further some of the things we've talked about in the last couple of weeks,
please feel free to come, get your coffee, join us in electives, and just ask your questions. I probably won't be able to answer them all, but that's okay. We'll talk about what, um, what we can. Yeah? So that's some ways that you can respond. And now it falls to me, actually, to introduce communion as well. So let me read something in addition and, uh, <clears throat> and pray, and let's move into communion. So Luke 22 has already been mentioned, which begins, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And in verse 7 it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Lord God, we want to pray to you now and uh, give you thanks for the God that you are, trustworthy, reliable, uh, full of truth, and good as well. We think, thank you for the things that are recorded in Scripture regarding uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ, regarding this meal, regarding the things which we now seek to remember as we share the bread and the wine and the death and the resurrection of our Lord. We thank you for those things. We thank you that it also points to us, us to a hope, a hope in the kingdom of God which is now amongst us and one day will be fully realized. And uh, our trust is in you for that. And we thank you, await it with expectation. In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, amen.